Tonight's message is entitled The Testimony of Jesus. That that, uh, title is lifted directly from the book of Revelation. Of course, this is the keys of Revelation, and we've shown night after night how the Bible prophecy foretells the coming of Jesus. And of course, the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ, right? And we're looking forward to his coming. We want to be his faithful people. We don't want to follow the Antichrist. We want to follow the Jesus Christ. We want to come out of Babylon and be part of his remnant people. And in the book of Revelation, it continually describes God's people as those who keep the commandments of God, which we've covered. But then it says, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What in the world is this testimony of Jesus? And how do we see it in the the world today? So before we begin any study of God's Word, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll be off. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us time to come together, giving us this beautiful weather, giving us all the gifts of of health and, and endurance that we can continue to come out. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention once again to a study of your Word, Lord, it is my prayer that the message that is heard will be clear, that it will be convincing, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, convicting, so that we can be more like you every day. Help us to see what you have for us in store tonight, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The testimony of Jesus. Let's figure out what is the testimony of Jesus. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. In last evening's presentation, The Last Faithful Daughter, we noted that Revelation chapter 12 is simply a chronological outline of the history of God's faithful people from the beginning of their call, back with the children of Jacob, you know, the sun, the moon, and the stars, remember that? All the way through the birth of Christ, his ministry, his resurrection and ascension into heaven, the 1260 years of persecution, and then afterwards... There's still this group of people that the dragon, that is Satan, through his powers here on earth, cannot get to cave. It can't get them to fall, fold. And it says in verse 17 that he's enraged. And the dragon was enraged with whom? And in Bible prophecy, a woman always represents the church, right? So he's enraged with the church, and particularly, and he went, went to make war with the rest of her offspring. So apparently some of the offspring, no problem, but there's this rest of the offering, or some versions say the remnant of her seed. And they're identified as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And again, we've covered the commandments of God. God wrote them down. He spoke them out loud. They're in tables of stone. We know what the commandments of God are. We want to be faithful to his word, all of his commands. But what is this testimony of Jesus? Well, fortunately... I don't know if it's any fortune, but providentially, the Lord doesn't just drop that phrase in the Bible and say, well, go figure it out, good luck. He actually lets the Bible interpret itself, and we see that occur later in the same book of Revelation. Go to Revelation now, chapter 19. Go seven chapters to the right. Revelation chapter 19. Now, again, of course, these texts are in your study guides, but they're just a snippet of the larger context. So I would urge you, don't just rely on the study guide. A, I could have a typo, and it could change everything. (laughs) I could have the wrong text in there, and you could be confused. 
but also I want you to see where that passage fits in the larger context, right? So the text that's there is Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, but we're going to start with verse 9 and see the experience. John has been just shown some marvelous things, and he's excited to write them down, and notice what happens in verse 9. Then he said to me, and this is the angel messenger who's giving this message to John, and he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And apparently John gets pretty excited. And he says in verse 10, and I fell at his feet to do what? Worship him. Now, there's no problem worshiping someone as long as it's God. But this person is not God. And he makes that emphatically clear. Look how he responds to John's falling down and worshiping him. Again in verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. Why? Well, he goes on. I am your fellow what? Servant. He's like, look, we're both working for the same guy, okay? I live in a different place, you have a different job description, but we're both serving the same God. I am not God. I work for him just like you do. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Now, this is the angel messenger saying, hey, hey, I work for God too. I'm a servant just like you and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. And then he says, worship whom? God. Worship God, not me. I'm just a servant who has this testimony of Jesus. But then he goes on to say what the testimony of Jesus is. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of what? Prophecy. The testimony of Jesus, according to the book of Revelation, is the spirit of prophecy. And notice he says, I'm just a servant just like you and your brethren who have the spirit of prophecy, of the testimony of Jesus. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In fact, it happens once more. Go a couple chapters to the right again, this time to Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter in the last book of the Bible. John gets all excited once again about what he's been shown. And we'll start in verse 6, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now watch what happens again. John gets excited. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I saw and heard, I heard and saw I fell down to worship before the feet of the what? Angel who showed me these things. So again, he's not bowing down to God himself. He's bowing down to God's servant, his messenger. He gets so excited about the message that he starts to worship the messenger. And the messenger says, stop. Notice again, verse 9, and tell me this doesn't sound exactly like what happened before. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. Why? Verse 4. For I am your fellow servant. Now, everything we've read is word for word what had happened in Revelation chapter 19 already. See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant. 
But last time he said, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. And then he says, testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. But now notice what he says this time. Verse 9, then he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the whom? Prophets. So apparently the spirit of prophecy is manifested in the actual gift of having a prophet, a spokesman for God, which we're going to get into what is a prophet in just a minute. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Very clearly, over and over and over. According to the book of Revelation, God's end-time remnant people will be known as those who keep the commandment of God and have the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus, according to the same book, is the spirit of prophecy. And apparently that spirit of prophecy is manifested in actually a prophet. It's not just a general just spirit in the air. No, it's a prophet. Just like you and your servants, the angel says. Just like you're a prophet, this is what the spirit of prophecy is. And apparently, God's end-time church will have faithfulness to God's Ten Commandment law and have the gift of prophecy in its midst. Now, that's an interesting thought. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I think this is tremendously interesting. I have been told I say the word fascinating a lot. So I'm going to do my best to find other adjectives. So this is intriguing, what we will read here. <laughs> this should capture your attention. <laughs> First Peter chapter 1, and we'll start with verse 10. Now, the wording of this is a little bit complex, but just take a look at what he's actually saying here. He's talking about salvation that God has offered us in Jesus Christ and how the prophets of old have prophesied about the coming Savior. Okay, now watch. Of this salvation, the what? Prophets have what? Give me another word for inquired. Asked, looked into, investigated. They've tried to look it up too, right? They've searched it out. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied. Now, think about what he's saying here. The very prophets who prophesied about the salvation that we have now seen in Jesus Christ, they weren't here to see it actually happen, so they wanted to understand it more. They were given the message that it was going to happen, but they wanted to learn more about it too, so they asked, they searched. So the very ones who prophesied investigated the prophecies they were given. Okay? Again, we'll read it, verse 10, carefully. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. So the very ones who prophesied the grace that has come to you now, they're interested in it too. Okay? So they've searched out carefully. And what are they looking for, verse 11? Searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So they are trying to understand the message they've been entrusted with that there's a coming Savior 
And they want to know when he's going to show up, what his ministry is going to be. They want to understand more about this salvation that Peter says, you've now seen. The very ones who received that message are interested in it. They're inquiring about it. They're searching it out. But notice the language that he uses here. Look at verse 11 again. Searching what or what manner of time, the spirit of whom? Christ, who was where? In them was indicating when he, so who is he? The spirit of Christ, right? Testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Notice it was the spirit of Christ who was in these prophets who was testifying about the ministry of Christ to come. Do you see what I'm saying? Maybe we'll say it again. It was the Spirit of Christ, according to this passage, who was in the prophets, leading them to write what they were writing about this coming Jesus. Even though they didn't understand it fully, they didn't live in the time, it was before it was happening, but they wanted to know more about it, so they inquired and searched. So the Spirit of Christ was in them, testifying of what would come. Namely, what Jesus' ministry would be like. So the Spirit of Christ, testified about the ministry of Christ to come. And apparently the Spirit of Christ was in them testifying. If you testify, that means you've given your testimony, right? So apparently the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, namely, was in the prophets testifying about the mission of Christ when it would come which is kind of a fascinating thing, that before Christ came, he sent the Holy Spirit to tell prophets about what his own ministry would be like. So Christ writes the script through the power of the Holy Spirit, who inspired the authors of Scripture, right? And in his testimony about his own ministry, that he comes and lives out. So when Christ says, don't think that I've come to change the law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill I'm just living according to the script already written. There's a plan of salvation. That's why it's called the plan of salvation. It's not the happenstance of salvation. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> it's not, he did, Jesus didn't come and just shoot from the hip and be like, hey, I think this would be a good time. To, no, 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 no. He had a plan. Did he not repeatedly say, my time has not yet come? Or when it had come, my hour has come, right? Now is the judgment. He operated on the calendar which he helped establish. It's a fascinating concept. But my point for right now is that these prophets had in them the Spirit of Christ, and that Spirit of Christ was testifying about the mission of Christ to come. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, was giving his testimony about his own mission. Thus, it makes sense that the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. And that prophets, when they receive a message from God and they write it down, are simply relaying the testimony of Jesus. Are you seeing that? All right, we're going to develop this a little bit more, but I want you to see that the book of Revelation comes back to this idea that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what is a prophet? Now, I'm guessing if we went out to Meyer or something, stood in the parking lot, and just started asking people, Hey, what's up? And this is nothing against Meyer. It could be Walmart too. <laughs> but hey, what are your thoughts on what is a prophet? 
What do you think a prophet is? What do you think a prophet does? What's a prophet? I'm guessing you'd get some answers that they would think of like a mystic or some sort of astrologer or soothsayer or someone who knows the future can see into a a magic ball or something and read cards. You know, there's a very kind of sense of a prophet, right? And now, is that what the Bible says that a prophet is? Is a fortune teller or even a future teller? What is, according to the Bible, the definition of a prophet? And I think you're going to see that it's much simpler than all of that, you know, smoke and mirrors, okay? Let's take a look at the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, chapter 4. Moses is called to lead God's people out of Egypt. And it would be a wonderful book. Exodus, we're going to go to chapter 4. If every time God asked someone to do something, they just said, yes, sir, and they did it. But oftentimes you'll see that even God's faithful are not initially eager. Okay? You look at Moses, we're going to see here in a minute. You look at Jeremiah, when the Lord says, I've ordained you as a prophet. He says, ah, Lord, I'm too young. Jonah was told, go to Nineveh. And so he went the other way, you know. Apparently the Lord deals with reluctant people. And Moses initially was one of those. Look at Exodus chapter 4. And we're going to start with uh, verse 10. The Lord calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Look what we read. Then Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, if you remember, he who was raised in Egypt, but he's just spent the last 40 years out in the wilderness, and apparently maybe, you you know, my wife speaks fluent French, or she used to when she was in a French-speaking country. Take her out for a few years, stuff gets rusty, right? And here Moses says, look, you want me to go talk to people? Talking isn't my thing. I'm not eloquent. I'm not quick with the language. You want someone else. I love the Lord's response. He doesn't say, oh, oh, you're right, I forgot, my bad. And thus the book of Exodus ends. (laughs) Of course not. Look what he says in verse 11. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? (laughs) You got a problem with your mouth? I can fix it. (laughs) Right? Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore, what? Go. (laughs) Now that I've said that, you go. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Was Moses supposed to go and just kind of talk to Pharaoh and say whatever he wanted? No, he said, you are going to speak for me, right? I'll teach you what to say, and you go say it. You don't have to worry about coming up with words or eloquent speeches. You'll just convey my message. That's it. Look at verse 13. But he said, oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. He's like, literally send, I don't care, anybody else. Just not me. And the Lord was pleased with Moses, yes? No. (laughs) Look at verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Because obviously plan A was for God to give him the message. 
And then Moses go tell it to Pharaoh. That's the plan. Moses said, send somebody else. He probably said it just like that. Send somebody else. And then look what the Lord brokers a deal here, right? So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now watch the process in verse 15. Now, you shall speak to him and put the words where? In his mouth. Right? The Lord's original plan was, I will speak to you and you speak to Pharaoh. But you say, I don't want to do it. So, all right, let's add another middleman. Lord, I'll speak to you, and then you make sure he relays that message on. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. Now notice verse 16. This is our definition. So he shall be your what? Spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be as a mouth for whom? For you. And you shall be to him as God. Now remember, originally it was God to Moses to Pharaoh. Or the people, whoever God wanted to send him to, right? God to Moses. Moses says, let's add a step. How about we shift it over one guy? The Lord is not happy with this, but okay. Then you will play the role of God and he will be your spokesman. But you notice what God originally called Moses to be was a spokesman. I want you to see that very clearly. Okay? Again, verse 16, So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. Now, skip over to chapter 7 very quickly. Same book, just over a couple pages. Chapter 7. And you remember God said, he's going to be your mouth, he's going to be your spokesman. And then watch what the Lord says. Chapter 7, verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your... Do you see that the Lord himself builds an equivalence between a spokesman and a what? Prophet. The biblical definition of a prophet is simply a spokesman for God. Whether that message he conveys is about the future or not, that's up to God. There's plenty of prophets in the Bible who never foretold the future, but it didn't make them less of a prophet. Their simple job is to receive the message from God and convey it on using their mouth as God's mouthpiece, right? You shall be a spokesman, a prophet. Let's go to Jeremiah We'll see the same thing with the call of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. And in the same way that um, Moses was a reluctant, and we've already mentioned this, reluctant prophet for the Lord, Jeremiah was reluctant too. Now his issue is not that he was slow of speech, but it was because he was too young, he thought. right? God seems to like to use people who in their natural ability couldn't do what he asked them to do. Just in case the glory would go to their head, right? He's like, I could use Aaron, sure, he already speaks well, but I want to use you because you're bad at talking. 
then when you're good, you have to give glory to God. You don't come by it honestly, right? Here he goes to Jeremiah, verse 4. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a what? Prophet to the nation. He's like, I have already in my plan set you apart for this purpose. You're going to be my prophet. Of course, what does Jeremiah come back with? Oh, Lord, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. That's his excuse. Verse 7, but the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth. Now pause right here. Is the Lord God saying, shh, don't tell people how old you are? Or is he worse than saying, just lie about your age? Is that what he's saying? No. So why is he saying, don't say I'm a youth? He means don't use your youth as an excuse to not do what I'm telling you to do, right? Do not say I am a youth. Why? For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. My command will come out of your mouth. Do not be afraid of their faces, verse 8, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Now this is the key, verse 9. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put what? My words where? In your mouth. Again, he said, I've set you to be a prophet, and that simply means you will relay the message I give to you to whomever I send you. Is that clear so far? Okay. We're building a case here. Of course, 2 Peter chapter 1 in the New Testament, this same concept is once again seen in the Scriptures. We're in 2 Peter chapter 1. Starting with verse 16, the Apostle Peter now is talking about his personal experience with Jesus Christ and witnessing of all that he did. But he doesn't say, I want you to believe in Jesus because of what I've seen and heard. Watch what he says here. Verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So apparently the rumor was going around, oh, they're just, they're kind of building this Jesus guy up more than, and this guy's saying, no, 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 I was alive, I was there, I saw it with my own eyes, I heard it with my own ears. This is not old wives' tales. This is true. Four, verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. That's the Mount of Transfiguration. He was like, I was there. I was there when he was baptized. I was there on the mountain. I've seen it myself. I've heard the voice of God. And now let's notice what he says in verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word, what? Confirmed. He says what they wrote about in prophecies, those prophets, what they, that message they gave from God, we saw it fulfilled. I'm an eyewitness to the confirmation that what they wrote is true. goes on. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, is he saying, you would do well to listen to my eyewitness testimony? No. He's saying my eyewitness testimony simply confirms the veracity of the prophets who prophesied what I saw. 
right? And you would do well to heed the prophets because I can tell you it's coming true. I've seen it come true in my own experience. Okay? Now he goes on to explain why we should trust the prophets. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never, how often? Never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what they spoke and what they testified to, what they wrote down, they didn't just conjure it up. They didn't have a conspiracy theory. They all got in a room and came up with these ideas. No, 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 no. Each one was raised up by God. They had a message. And sometimes, as we already saw, they didn't even understand the message they were communicating. You recall, already we talked about it, how the prophets who prophesied about the coming of Jesus tried to search out and understand the message? We've seen that time and again. Look at the prophet Daniel. He'd receive a message, and at the end he's like, and no one understood it. (laughs) Does it make the message less true if the prophet doesn't even understand it? No. The prophet is not necessarily the wisest person. They're not called because they're scholars. They're not called because they're anything great. They're called because they're faithful and will deliver the message. Amen? He said, my job for you I've got a young one over here. I've got one who really can't talk. I don't care if you're a scholar, a king, if you're a, if you're a pauper in the streets. I want someone who, and if I give the message to, you will say it. That's the simple Bible definition of a prophet is a spokesman for God. In fact, let's go to our fill in the blank. A, prophet's, a prophet conveys a message from God in their own words. They, just, they are the vehicle for God's message, right? A spokesman. That's what we're looking for. That's what the Bible definition is. A spokesman for God. So whatever ideas of mysticism and spiritualism and divination and astrologer and all kind of mystic thing that you might be thinking about prophet, please disabuse your mind of that assumption. A prophet is simply someone who faithfully conveys a message from God. And by the way, there were plenty of prophets who didn't get books written in the Bible. That didn't make them any less a prophet. There were plenty of prophets who were men. There were prophets who were women. There were prophets who were young. There were prophets who were old. There were prophets who just ran the whole spectrum. What God is looking for is just something, a faithful messenger who will convey what he has to say. Are we on the same page so far? All right, let's continue on then. Prophecy in the church. Well, once Jesus came, the assumption might be that old, you know, you get the picture of a prophet and you're thinking like, okay, a biblical prophet, okay, sure, Moses, or maybe some of the minor prophets like uh, Joel or Nahum or Obadiah or something like that. But now that Jesus has come, he was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, right? What they wrote about, surely we're done with prophecy, right? That was for then, but are there prophets in the church even after Christ came and lived and died and established the New Testament church. What about prophets in the church? Well, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 11. And again, I've been preaching out of the New King James Version. The one that's in your study guide, if you see there, is from the New International Version. It just cleans up a little bit of the language here, and I'm going to read it from there, but you get the picture from whatever version you've got. Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 11. It was he, that is Jesus Christ, who gave some to be what? 
apostles, and some to be prophets. By the way, did Jesus coming eliminate the gift of prophecy? No. Just as much as there's apostles and apparently evangelists and pastors and teachers, there's also prophets. Some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now think about that. Apparently the spiritual gifts that God gives out, including the gift of prophecy, are there to build up the church so that we become mature, so that we become more like Christ. And apparently they're going to be in effect until we all reach the unity of faith and we become like Jesus. My question for you is, have we attained that measure of the fullness of Christ yet? No. Do we see complete you? Not yet, no. There is no expiration date on any of the spiritual gifts, whether it be administration, whether it be healing, whether it be speaking in tongues, whether it be prophecy. And here it says, apparently it's until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, apparently these gifts are to help us so that we will no longer be what? Infants tossed back and forth or to and fro by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching or doctrine and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. So apparently these spiritual gifts like apostles and evangelists and teachers and pastors and yes, prophets are there so that we don't get tossed back and forth by every doctrine that comes along, every teaching, every newfangled idea that comes up like, oh, I should follow that or I should follow that. He said, no, 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 no. I'm going to give you these spiritual gifts to help stabilize and build up the church so that you don't get tossed to and fro. Apparently that's the purpose of spiritual gifts is to build up the church and yes, they have a role to play in keeping us on the straight and narrow of Bible doctrine. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the what? The truth, how? By the way, we should always speak the truth, amen? And we should always speak it in love. The Apostle Paul's big on this. If you know, I'll just take a quick second here. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you find, you don't have to look it up right now, but you find another chapter where he talks about these spiritual gifts. And again, he lists off prophecy and speaking in tongues and administration, all these different gifts. And then he takes a pause after 1 Corinthians 12, and he says, at the very end, he said, now I'll show you the more excellent way. And he goes into 1 Corinthians 13, which is known as the love chapter. And he talks about how love, even if I had the tongues to speak in men of angels, and if I could understand all wisdom, and under, but if I have not love, I'm nothing. Right? So apparently these spiritual gifts are supposed to be used, but not in an abusive way, that they're supposed to help build up, to edify the body of Christ, which is the church, and they're supposed to keep us doctrinally sound so that we become more and more like Jesus, stay on the straight and narrow, and give us the truth in love. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. So let's go to our fill in the blanks. Under prophecy in the church, 
spiritual gifts are given to build up the, and here he uses the analogy of the body of Christ, but that is the church. We're going to have another lesson about that tomorrow evening, about what is the body of Christ, but clearly it is the church. And this is a little interesting uh, fact for you here, but if you were to look up every list of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, I think there's at least four lists where they talk about, and you know, spiritual gifts, this one and this one and this one, they list them off. The only gift that's mentioned in every list of spiritual gifts is the gift of prophecy. It's not the gift of tongues. It's not the the gift of uh, evangelism. It's not the gift of wisdom. It's not the gift of, it's the gift of prophecy. It's the only one that's consistently mentioned in every list. Thus we can discern that spiritual gifts, including prophecy, will exist in the church until we all reach the unity of the faith. That's their purpose, to get us there. Thus the gift of prophecy keeps us from being carried about with every wind of doctrine. Apparently, God gives prophets not to contradict his word, but to make sure that we're staying faithful to his word. Amen? So God isn't raising up prophets to go this way when God's word says, no, 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 no. Apparently when we're straying, he raises up prophets to return us to faithfulness to God and his commands. Let me give you a practical illustration of this in the New Testament church. Go to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Look at verse, well, we can just start with Acts. There's so many places we could start. (laughs) Acts chapter 15 We'll start with verse 6, but let me tell you what happens in the first five verses. In Acts chapter 15, there is a theological, a doctrinal dispute in the early church. Some people are saying, now that Jesus has come, the ceremonial law, like keeping the feasts and the rites and the ceremonies, particularly the individual rite of circumcision for the males of eight days old, right, or any convert who comes to the faith, In the Old Testament times, if you were a convert to the Israelite faith, you had to demonstrate that with circumcision. Now the question was, but now that Christ has come and he has fulfilled those ceremonial laws, of course, he doesn't take anything away from the great moral law. It's not like now you can go kill people and commit adultery. Of course not, right? But he was the lamb that was slain, right? Those types and shadows pointed to Christ. So the question was, now when someone comes to the faith and they accept Jesus Christ as the culmination of all of the law and the prophets, do they still need to be circumcised or can we be done with that too? And there was a group in the church that said, any Gentile convert must be circumcised in order to be saved. Another group said, no, 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 you don't need to be circumcised. If they want to, that's fine. I mean, you don't have to, you don't know, but you certainly don't have to to be saved. Now, it's just, just, let's start with verse 1. <laughs> It'll take two extra minutes, and I'm sure you want two extra minutes. Amen? I'll take the one amen to represent all of you. Okay. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to what? The custom of... Does it say according to the law of God? 
No, it says according to the custom of Moses. You cannot be saved. I think there's new converts coming with a faith, and that's a new idea to them, and it's kind of, hmm, what do we do about this? Therefore, now notice how nicely this language puts it. When Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. Now think about it. If it's not a small dispute, then it is a big fight, right? So apparently they contended with them. It's like, oh, brothers, you're way off base. That's, that's not true anymore. So they counter their position. Therefore, verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. All right, let's study this out. And this is, by the way, the right way we do If we have a doctrinal dispute, you don't just slug it out in the parking lot. Let's reserve judgment. Let's study it out and see how the Lord leads, right? So they say, let's just take this to the brother and let's study this question out. Now, verse 3, they go on their way and, and along the way they describe how great things are that the Lord has been doing. And then we skip down to verse 6. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And notice verse 7. And when there had been much dispute... So the fight that started over there has now been brought back to Jerusalem, and they're still disputing. So I want you to get this the concept here. There is a theological, a doctrinal position of the church that seems unclear, even with God's Word sitting there. And all of these people are, are believers in Jesus Christ. They accept God's Word, but they're still unclear as to the resolution of this issue. Notice what they don't do. They don't say, well, I guess you think this and you think that. So in your position, you can make everybody get circumcised. And over there, you don't have... No, no, no. They say, we're not going to have a divided church. We're going to speak in unity, but we need to come to a resolution. So how do they do it? And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, if you were to study that out, he says, men, you know that I have been chosen by God to go preach to these Gentiles. Question is, how did God choose Peter? If you recall the story from Acts chapter 10, he's on his housetop and a vision from heaven comes down. He gets a sheet, right? And it's full of these unclean animals. And he's told, rise, kill, and eat. And he said, no, 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 I don't eat unclean animals. And then the Lord, by the way, tells us what that means. It doesn't mean now all animals can be eaten. That's not the point. He said, don't call people who you used to call unclean, unclean still. <laughs> right? He said, those are my people. And then he says, look, some men are on their way. They're about to knock on your door, and they're going to invite you to a Gentile's house to preach the gospel. Go with them, and don't say anything back. So Peter obeys the voice, and sure enough, the very next thing, knock on the door. And here's some gentlemen inviting him into the household of Cornelius. And he goes and he preaches the gospel to this Gentile. And wouldn't you know it, he accepts the gospel. And the same Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost was poured out on these Gentiles without having them be circumcised. Much to Peter's shock as well. <laughs> in fact, Peter took some friends with him. He's like, you watch what I'm doing here. Everything's above board because you get in trouble even for eating or talking to a Gentile. And you went into their house? Which, by the way, Acts chapter 11 is just his explanation of why you did such a naughty thing. 
But now Peter stands up on the day of uh, 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 this is the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 when the dispute is to circumcise or not. And he stands up and he says, look, I know you're having a doctrinal dispute, but let me tell you my prophetic experience. You know, I've already reported it to you, that the Lord chose me. He signed and sealed it. And thus my position is, if we keep reading in Acts chapter 15, So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So God has already made this determination. And made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now we're going to come back to Acts chapter 15 in just a little bit. But I want you to see that at the local church level, when this first erupted, there was a dispute. And even when they went to the higher council of the church, to Jerusalem, to the apostles and elders themselves, there was still a doctrinal dispute. But what turned the day? Peter getting up and saying, men and brethren, you know that the Lord chose me for this, to go preach to the Gentiles, even though I was surprised by it too. His prophetic experience where the Lord came down to him and said, you go and do what I tell you to do. Now they were able to listen. And the Lord decided that issue for them through the prophetic gift of Peter's experience. Now, we'll come back to this in a few minutes, but I want to put that in your head. The the spirit of prophecy, the gift of prophecy, has a role in clarifying doctrinal issues. Please understand, it is not given to contradict Scripture, but to clarify Scripture, to make application of its principles in practical ways in our lives. Does that make sense? The Lord doesn't raise up someone to contradict because the same Holy Spirit who inspired the authors of Scripture is not going to raise up a prophet to counteract what the Holy Spirit already wrote. But apparently, God raises up prophets in both the Old and the New Testament for the purpose of building up the church and making application of those biblical principles he's already written down and clarifying and helping all of us to grow into the people that God wants us to be according to his word. So yes, prophets were very much alive and well, even in the New Testament church. But now let's turn over to the next page. What about prophecy in the last days? Surely that gift has expired. Well, as we've seen already, and you can go look at every time spiritual gifts are ever mentioned in the Bible, nowhere is there an expiration date. In fact, again, according to Ephesians chapter 4, apparently it's supposed to be till we all come to the unity of faith and we mature and become like Jesus which I don't know about you, but I'm not there yet. I still need spiritual gifts to guide me and direct me and help me to come more like Jesus and unite the faith and make us clear on these doctrinal issues. Now notice this, Acts chapter 2, still in the book of Acts. When the Holy Spirit was poured out and the spiritual gifts, this time the gift of tongues, was just given to, and by the way, we could have a whole study on the gift of tongues, yes, But when the gift of tongues was given to the early church leaders, the apostles, Peter gets up and makes a speech. And he explains what they're seeing. And he quotes an Old Testament prophet to say what what you've just seen and experienced is a partial fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. Look at Acts chapter 2, and we're going to go to verse 16. He says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And apparently Joel had prophesied, and you can look it up in Joel as well, but here we'll do it in the book of Acts. And it shall come to pass when? In the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall what? Prophesy. So not only do we see that there isn't a written expiration date for any of the spiritual gifts, but in particular, God specifically says that in the last day, his Holy Spirit will be poured out on men and women for the gift of prophecy. Notice it goes, young men shall see visions, old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall what? Prophesy. So it shouldn't be any confusion at all that when we see God's end time people described in Revelation chapter 12, that they are those who keep the commandments of God and have the spirit of prophecy. That shouldn't be like a newfangled idea. It's exactly what the Bible has anticipated all along. And they shall prophesy. In fact, let's go back to the Old Testament. Amos chapter 3 gives us a beautiful, simple, one-sentence principle for how God works. God has a particular method of getting his messages across. Whenever the Lord wants to do something, he always gives people a heads up before it happens. It's a pretty consistent thing that you'll see all throughout, and we'll look to some examples here in just a moment. But in Amos chapter 3, look at verse 7. Surely the Lord God does how much? Nothing. Praise God that our God does something, right? (laughs) But he does nothing unless he does what? He reveals his secrets to whom? Servants, the prophets. So if God is about to do something, he's going to tell his servants, the prophets, what's going to happen. In fact, we've seen this in the book of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which John was shown because there are things which are about to take place. The whole purpose of having prophets is to prepare people for what the Lord wants to do and convey his message at the right time. Surely the sovereign Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Now what we have here on your study guide is we don't have a lot of charts and graphs and figures in these study guides, just a list of texts and some fill-in-the-blanks, but I want you to take notice in your study guide that there is an interesting I believe, outline of how the Lord operates through his prophets. Whenever the Lord has a plan, whenever he has something that's going to happen, according to Amos chapter 3, verse 7, he always informs or reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. So let's put that to the test and see if it matches up with Bible history. When God wants to do something big, he informs his people through his messengers, the prophets. For example, let's go to Genesis chapter 5. We'll try to go through this rather quickly, but I want you to see the pattern that's developed here. In Genesis chapter 5, in verse 21, we have a genealogy of the faithful, the faithful line of Adam through his son Seth before the flood takes place. And you find in verse 21 where it says, Enoch lived 65 years and begat whom? Methuselah. Now, in our reading, that's just like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? A begat? Why is that in here? But what's important about this is two things. Number one, here's a nice little piece of interesting trivia for you. Who was the very first prophet according to the Bible? 
the very first prophet that the Bible mentions as actually being a prophet was not Moses, was not Abraham, it was Enoch. Leave your finger right there in Genesis chapter 5 and go to Jude 14, just before the book of Revelation, the book right before Revelation. And of course, it's so small that it doesn't have chapters, it's just one page. Jude, and look at verse 14. It says, now whom? Enoch, the seventh from Adam. If you go back, you can count them up. It matches Adam, then his son Seth, and then on and on and on down the line. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, did what? Prophesied. And in the context of Jude, there's some wicked men who are going to get theirs at the second coming of Jesus. And in fact, at the very end of the great controversy, if you look in the context, he's specifically talking about the destruction of the wicked at the end of the millennium. But here I want you to point out the simple fact that according to Scripture, Enoch was a prophet. Now, how does that apply to Genesis chapter 5, verse 21? When Enoch was 65 years old, he has a son, and he names him Methuselah. Now, there was a time when names meant something. I have no idea what my name... In fact, I know what my name means, and it's not really flattering. <laughs> it's crooked nose. <laughs> No, nobody, nobody aspires to be that guy. But anyway, that's the name of God. But, but in Bible times, people would name their children for a specific purpose, right? It was a message there. And Methuselah, Enoch named his son Methuselah, and the name Methuselah means when he dies, it will be sent. When he dies, it will be sent. Well, what is the it that he's talking about? Well, there's a big event in the relative near future, at least according to Bible time periods. What's the next big event on the horizon? The flood, right? Now, long before it happens, God raises up a prophet to prophesy about this coming event. And he names Methuselah, when he dies, it will be sent. Now, Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11 God raises up another prophet closer to the time of its event or in the time of its occurring to be the present truth. Now, when Enoch predicted this to happen, when he foretold it, it wasn't any time soon, right? It was a long time prophecy to go, but God reveals his servants, secrets to his servants, prophet, and they have time to prepare. And then God raises up a present truth messenger, present truth prophet to say, hey, that thing is now. Genesis chapter 7, look at verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, this is very specific about time, right? On that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open. So the flood began at Noah's 600th year. Now, if we had the time, we could actually go back and find out that, lo and behold, Methuselah lived to exactly the year that the flood came. Enoch prophesied, names his son this living prophecy, and I'm guessing people could watch, it's like, you know, he's getting older. (laughs) He's getting older, which in that day and age, you know, two or three hundred was like, you know, 
your young roaring 20s, right? Because people lived till 900. In fact, Methuselah lived the longest of all the people who lived and then died at 969 years. But as he got closer, and then the Lord raises up Noah, starts building the boat, starts calling, and the animals are coming into the ark. Everything is getting prepared. So the people are prepared for the great thing that the Lord's about to do. And on the exact time when God had said it would happen, the flood happens. God has a prophetic process where he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. The first one being the initial one, and then later, when it's occurring, to raise up a prophet to say, this is what they talked about. Is that making sense? Now, we can follow this through. Abraham happened the same thing. Go to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13. The Lord speaks to Abraham. Now, Abraham was long dead by the time the children of Israel even went into Egypt, much less came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. Okay, when I was a kid, I didn't know where the Bible characters belonged in the sequence of chronology. I just knew that there was an Abraham and there was an Apostle Paul and somewhere in between, you know, Jesus. But Moses came long after Abraham. And Abraham gets a prophecy from God. Look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Then he said to Abram, no, what's that next word? Certainly, no assuredly, no for serious, right? No certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them how long? 400 years. He gives a very specific time prophecy. And then lo and behold, when Moses comes along, Look at Exodus chapter 12. When the exodus out of the deliverance from Egypt occurs, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 41. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, and we'll come back with a reckoning on that in a minute, on the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. By the way, there's two different times for this. There's the 400 and then the 430, both of which are talking about the same time frame. One just has a different starting point, right? But at the very time when God had said they would be delivered, on that very day, they came out. To the day, God's prophecy worked. Let's look at another one. Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah was the prophet that Daniel was studying when he was in exile in Babylon, if you recall. In Daniel 9, he had that beautiful prayer about when are we going to be let go, but he had been studying from the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote about the captivity of Israel in Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 25, starting with verse 8. Therefore says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words... Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Isn't that great? He's like, he's working for me now. He's going to afflict you, but he's doing it because I'm allowing this, right? I'm leading out in this. My servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing and perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the sound of the, uh, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon how long? Seventy years. 
Thus we see in Daniel chapter 9 that the prophet Daniel was studying the prophecies of Jeremiah and looking at his prophetic wristwatch and saying, wait a minute, if you've said it, Lord, it's going to happen. Remember, look at Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish seven years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And Daniel lived in that time when it was coming true, and it should be coming true, and he's looking, and if you read through his prayer, his concern is, Lord, please don't delay. (laughs) If we have not repented, please don't keep us here another 70 years. So he has this heartfelt confession, this prayer in Daniel chapter 9. Let's look at one more. Still in Daniel chapter 9 now, verses 24 and 25. The answer to his, his inquiry about the 70 years of literal time was the 70 weeks of prophetic time for him and his people. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So another time frame is given. Daniel's living at the end of one, and he says, all right, here's another one. 490 years to go until Messiah, the prince, comes. And sure enough, right on time, as we've already studied, Jesus is born According to Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And Jesus knew when to start his ministry. In A.D. 27, he's baptized. In A.D. 31, in the middle of the week, he's cut off, but not for himself. And in A.D. 34, Stephen is stoned, according to the Bible prophecy that God had given through Daniel. And as Jesus was beginning his ministry, was there a prophet raised up to testify that this was the one that Daniel had talked about? Yes. John the Baptist, right? John chapter 1. Going to the New Testament now. John chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. Notice what the Scripture tells us. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. He said, I showed up on time to do my part, and lo and behold, there's what I was told to expect. There's Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, just as Bible prophecy had said. Now, let's go to Daniel chapter 8. Back to Daniel again. In verse 14, the longest time prophecy in the Bible, extending beyond the time of John on the island of Patmos, beyond the first coming of Jesus, looking forward to his second coming. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, what do we read? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, or in literal time, 2,300 years, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And of course, we've studied that before. That means the beginning of Christ's 
work as judge in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. The high priestly work that would begin 2,300 years after the starting point that was given in Daniel chapter 9. We came to that date of 1844 A.D. So if God is going to be consistent that surely the sovereign Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets, and every time God has a big event coming for his people, long ways in advance, he has an initial prophet to prophesy about it, and then he has a present truth prophet to raise up and explain it and say this thing that they talked about is now here. Yes? Then you would expect, if God is going to be consistent, and the gift of prophecy is prophesied to occur in the very last days, you would expect there to be a people on the earth who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. That amongst God's people, there would be this demonstration of the prophetic gift confirming what the previous prophets had talked about. Friends, I believe that that has been fulfilled in our era with the ministry of a woman by the name of Ellen G. White. And you might be thinking, what? Where in the world did this come from? Every one of you tonight is going to leave with a book. And you're like, hey, I just want a Bible. No, you still got to come to get your Bibles, okay? But we're going to give you a book entitled The Great Controversy. All the things that we've been talking about in this end-time events, these keys of revelation, are laid out exactly as we've demonstrated from the Scripture that they are in this powerful beautiful book called The Great Controversy. And I want you to taste and see for yourself if the Lord has not indeed in these last days raised up a messenger not to add to his word or contradict his word, but to confirm what the prophets have said and to give application in our lives to keep us from being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, to make sure that we're staying square and level along the plumb line that is Scripture. I want you to see that for yourself. And by the way, how do you know I'm not pawning off a false prophet on you? Let's be honest, like, prophet, oh, this is crazy talk. No. Well, how do you know it's not some sort of, like, false prophet, and I'm going to be, you know, getting my head into some sort of weird, crazy nonsense? Well, you have right to be concerned about false prophets, because Jesus said they would be there, right? He warned over and over, by the way, If he warns of a false prophet, what does that mean that there also must be? True, right? You only counterfeit genuine articles. We talked about the $13 bill counterfeit. You never see it because there's no real $13 bill. So if Satan's going to have a false something, if he's going to have a counterfeit, apparently God has an original, and it's up to us to discern which is which. Let's look at Scripture for this. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 24. When Jesus talks about the end times the times in which I believe we're living according to Bible prophecy, look what we find there. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 24. Jesus himself says, false Christs and false prophets might rise. Is that what it says? No. Will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, whom? Even the very elect. They're going to, there's going to be false prophets to arise and deceive, if possible, even the elect. So watch out. Okay. Thus we read in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 1. The same author who wrote the book of Revelation warns of false prophets to come. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. 
He says, Beloved, do not believe what? Now, does any of you, do any of you have a version that says, do not believe any spirit? No. We're just not supposed to believe every spirit, right? And why not? Well, it says to do what with it? To test the spirits. Apparently, there is a filter you can put them through to see if they come out clean on the other side. But test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Apparently, there's a plethora of false out there, but there is true. So how do you know the difference? Apparently, you test them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Because I know the idea is, man, there's so many crazy things claiming to be prophets or, you know, all these crazy astrologers or who knows what, you know. I just don't believe in anything like that. Well, no, 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 that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible specifically says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 19 and 20, do not quench the spirit, do not despise what? Prophecies. Now, is that saying, therefore, we should love everything that claims to be? No. Test all things and hold fast to that what is good. Okay? Apparently, there's a way to discern the true from the false. God has said that there's going to be a true, so we should totally expect Satan to raise up counterfeits to lead people astray and deceive, if possible, even the elect. So our job is not to embrace all prophets, nor is it to reject all prophets. Our job is to test all things and to hold fast that which is good. Now, there are many tests the Bible gives us about prophets, but I want to tell you the epitome, the ultimate, the guaranteed, you've got a good one is the test of Scripture itself. The same Holy Spirit who inspired the authors and the books of the Bible to write should inspire the prophets that explain it. Amen? There should be consistency between what God said then and what God says now because God does not change. Matthew chapter 7, watch this. Jesus gives an expanded explanation on this. By the way, I've been very honorable in our time so far, right? And we're at the very end here, so you're going to give me an extra five minutes. Amen? Good. And if you want to walk out, you can, but I'll remember who you were. All right. Jesus speaks about this. Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 15. Beware of what? Over and over. We're told, watch out, don't be deceived. There's going to be false prophets. Beware of false prophets who come to you, how? Sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. It very much seems like the lamb with horns, I mean, the, the beast with horns like a ram, but it speaks like a dragon. Apparently, this is how Satan works. Comes in a very Christ-like, even Jesus said, they'll come in my name, claiming great things, showing signs and wonders, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So how do you know the difference? Verse 16, you will know them by their what? Fruits. And he explains, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And then he goes on to say in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So apparently there's some people going to be saying, Oh, you're my Lord, 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 right? But they're not getting in. 
So what made the difference? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does what? The will of my Father in heaven. Apparently, obedience to God's word is still and always, ever has been, always will be, the fundamental issue in the great controversy. Are you faithful to what God has said? And if a prophet comes along to get you away from God's word, beware. I don't care how shiny they are, how articulate they might be, how great oratory or pleasing to the eye and whatever they might be. If they don't go according to the word of God and lead you to faithfulness to his word, friends, that's a false prophet. Look at this now. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not what? Prophesied how? We were using your name to say these things. Surely that cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. We could do signs and wonders. By the way, Revelation chapter 13 says that the beast from the earth will also do signs and wonders to deceive. Just because someone can do some magic trick doesn't mean that they're from God. There has to be a litmus test higher than what you see and what you feel and what you taste and what you touch. It has to have a higher standard, namely the very word of God. Watch this now. Again, many will come in me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who what? Practice what? Lawlessness. You might say great things. You might come in my name. You might do shiny works, but you have not been faithful to the word of God. By the way, that's the definition of sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John chapter 4. And apparently these people have done everything except actually keep the word of God. God said, no, 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 no. The ultimate litmus test, litmus test is are you faithful to my word? Which, by the way, brings us back to our story in Acts chapter 15. How did they know Peter was telling the truth? I mean, maybe he had skin in the game. Maybe he liked Paul and Barnabas and the other guys. What if they, how did they know that his prophecy was telling the truth? Well, notice what we read. Acts chapter 15. And we're going to go to verse 14. When James, after hearing all the arguments, rises up and he says, Simon has declared, referring to Peter's prophetic vision experience that he relates to the people, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And notice verse 15, and with this, that is his prophetic announcement, right? The words of the prophets do what? Agree. Even then, when Peter himself, who is an author of Scripture, gives a prophetic testimony, they counter it, they make sure to run it through the filter, which is Scripture. Does what he's saying, does his message actually match with God's revealed word? And they said, yes. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Now let's come down to this last thing, because I know this is an argument some people have, and they say, well... I don't know about prophets or whatnot, but I'm going to just stick to the Bible and the Bible only. Friends, I believe we should stick to the Bible and the Bible only. No problem. I love the concept of sola scriptura. This is one of those great Protestant issues. Because the Catholic Church had said, oh, there's the church's traditions that trump the word of God. And the Protestant reformers said, no, no, no. 
sola scriptura. We're saved by faith alone. We're saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, and by the word of God alone do we have our assured standing. Sola scriptura. Does the modern-day prophet undermine that principle of sola scriptura? Not even a little. In fact, we're going to show the exact opposite. Let me demonstrate this from the scriptures. Give me three and a half more minutes and we're good. John chapter 9, a man is healed by Jesus. And instead of throwing him a party and patting him on the back and hugging him, the religious leaders were very upset that this had occurred because Jesus had done it and the way he did it and when he did it. Oh, they didn't like this Jesus healing people. And they kept questioning this guy. They questioned him, sent him home. They dragged his parents into the fight. Was he really born blind? They're like, yes, he was born blind. Then how is it that he sees now? They're like, I don't know. I wasn't there. Ask him. So they drag him back in and ask him again. And this time, the man who has received his sight gets a little sarcastic. And it doesn't help his cause much. Okay? Now watch what happens. John chapter 9, verse 26. Oh, no, start with verse, uh, verse 25. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. It's like you're asking me from deep philosophical, historical, anthropological, I don't know. I was blind this morning, and now I see you. And I imagine he's like, and I don't like what I see. But anyway, then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Now watch this. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Right? Now, if there's one prophet who's prophet above all prophets, it's Jesus Christ. He didn't just come with a message. He came as the message, right? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I'm the ultimate messenger for God, right? Now, listen to what they say about Jesus. This is very insightful. Verse 28. Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We don't need this Jesus. We have the words of the Bible. We are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he's from. Now, that's a very pious-sounding reason to reject Jesus, isn't it? Because we just believe in the Bible only. But the problem with that is, that very Bible that they claim to believe, Moses himself had written that there's a prophet coming and you should listen to him. Right? Watch this now. Watch as it unfolds. Moses says, there's a prophet coming, and they reject the prophet. So let me ask you a question. In rejecting the prophet, are they being faithful to the word of Moses? No. So if God's word says, there will be prophets in the last day, listen to them, and you say, I don't want to listen to prophet, I'm just going to stand on the word of God. You're not standing on the word of God, friends. Jesus explained this. Look at John chapter 5, just a few verses back, a few chapters back. John chapter 5, verses 45 through 47. 
He told them about how they're reading the Bible, but they're not seeing it for what it is. John chapter 5, verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I, I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, and who is that? Moses, in whom you trust. You claim to love Moses, big fans of Moses, but Moses told you to listen to me. <laughs> for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Right? The very Bible that people use to say, no, no, I reject the gift of prophecy in the last days, is the very Bible that says to expect and listen to the gift of prophecy in the last days. Jesus experienced in his own time. We shouldn't be surprised that we experience it now. Let me close with this text from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And verse 20. The same gift of prophecy the children of Israel were supposed to listen to and guide them safely to their Canaan home, the Lord has sent in these last days to guide us safely to our heavenly home. It doesn't run counter to Scripture. It's a fulfillment of Scripture. 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 20. Notice what it says. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. Friends, like I told you, everyone tonight is going to get a copy of that book, The Great Controversy, one of many books written by this tremendous lady. I'll give you, in fact, we'll probably do it in our question and answer session, some facts and figures about the ministry of Ellen G. White, but I want you to taste and see for yourself and run it through the ringer of Scripture. Does whatever's in this book match with whatever we found in this book? If there's agreement, and if the Lord has said to listen to his prophet, friends, you should do it. If there isn't, jettison the whole thing. But be careful, because God said to listen. So at least test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Let me ask you a question. Has tonight's presentation made sense? Has it been clear? Praise God. Now, you may not be convicted. You may, you may maybe read a lick of this lady's writings. That's all right. I want you to take a look. Everybody's going to need a copy. And I want you to let the Lord lead you as you study his word and see the modern-day manifestation of the gift of prophecy. But let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your tremendous gifts to us, the gift of the Spirit and Lord, we know that you want us to be more like you. You want us to be sound doctrinally. You want us to be solid on your word. And just as you have from the very beginning of time, you raise up prophets to lead us to Jesus Christ and faithfulness to his word. Help us now as we seek to be the people who are faithful to you in these last days of earth's history. To be those who will frustrate and anger the dragon for we keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Help us to be your faithful servants until we see you come soon, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.